This week on the In-Depth Podcast, we're in Brooklyn with Blake Griffin. The NBA star signed with the Nets in March 2021, teaming with Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving to chase an NBA title. Now more of a role player, Griffin has finessed his game since his high-flying dunking days when he went number one overall to the Los Angeles Clippers in the 2009 draft. We discussed those L.A. days as Griffin opens up about navigating the Donald Sterling era. I'm 19 or 20, and I was just kind of like, all right, like, here we go. Right. I didn't know what to do. Like, right. this guy owns a team. The low points amidst a slew of injuries. And a doctor came in and told me what happened, and I just broke down. And the challenges of being biracial growing up in Oklahoma. You think about it when you're older, and you're like, oh, he thought we he, my dad kidnapped us. Plus, during our car ride together, Griffin shares the details of a chilling home burglary. So he was like, you know, 15 feet away from me. I was just dead asleep. But we begin with one of his main interests off the basketball court. Comedy, uh, what do you enjoy about it? I think over the years, like obviously as you, you start out just as a kid, you just, you liked, I love to laugh. And then as I sort of developed my comedy taste or my sense of humor, um, I really started enjoying like the art and like the craft of like joke writing. That's what sort of draws me to it. Cause I think it takes just a very, interesting mind to be able to take you on this journey and then get you to, you know, really come back and laugh at the end. In that 10-minute stand-up routine that you uh, performed in Montreal, what, what was involved with creating that? I told you I was going to be performing on a stage and I thought it was going to be basketball, so I'm sorry, I have nothing planned <laughs> I was going to go to this Montreal film uh, just for laughs, comedy festival, and I'd always wanted to go and so somebody was like, do you want to like talk to you know, somebody at the festival and see if like there's some stuff you want to do? And so I just was thinking like, oh, I'm going to go to like different things. And they were like, would, would you want to host a show? And I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Like just like, you know, put your name on it. You get to go to a show and pick out some comedians. And then they were like, okay, cool. And you'll just do like five to 10 up top. And I was like, wait, wait, that's not, not what I was thinking. But then I was like, you know what? I'll do it. Like, I was like, I'll do five minutes. And how much notice did they give you? This was like a month and a half. Okay. Yeah, it was a while. So it wasn't like, but it was that's like still the next not week. A, a no, it's, it's not doing it's something not that like long. that. Yeah. And then I also procrastinated. Early on, one of my buddies who's a stand up told me, like, just start writing stuff. You know, write stuff down and like, you'll have it and you can like develop it. And like, sometimes another thought will come. So I go to my notes folder and I start trying to put together 10 minutes, five minutes, which stretch to 10. And I had all these jokes and I was just like stuck. And I was like on the internet, I was like on YouTube watching interviews. And I watched a Seth Rogen interview where he was talking about when he st started doing stand-up. And that had a big difference for, for you in comedy, watching that interview, right? Yeah, because he started talking about when he was 13, he was going up and he was doing you know adult comedy shows. And he was tell jokes that were like adult jokes and he, they, some, sometimes they wouldn't land and came off stage and an com older comedian said to him like, how old are you? He was like, I'm 13. He was like, well, write about 13-year-old stuff. And that's when I was like, okay, I can write about basketball stuff. I can write about sports. That's what I know, and that's what people are going to associate me with. So I s scrapped everything, rewrote everything, and then went, went up and did it a couple times in L.A., and then went to Montreal and did it. You've seen athletes be interviewed on TV, and they're so bad that you think they're stupid, but it's not that we're stupid. Actually, football players are <laughs> you said that first night in Montreal was the scariest night of your life. Yeah. Why? Everybody kept saying like, oh, does like basketball help? Like, did it help you prepare for this? And I was just like, not 
even remotely, like in the least bit. The number one fear is public speaking. Comedy is just public speaking, but you have to make people laugh. And so it's, there's like this added pressure to it. You're on stage alone. If you like mess up once, like I feel like the audience can, I, I can, when I'm in the audience, I can always feel that. Like somebody that's nervous or somebody messes up and it's yeah. like, uh-oh. And if you mess up again, like it's just, it just snowballs. And, and also I've watched, I don't know how many documentaries, read books, like every comedian has bombed. So you never think you're above bombing. Right. Like certainly not me. You know, if Jerry Seinfeld and Dave Chappelle and all these guys talk about bombing, then it's always in the back of my mind that it's going to happen. I just don't know when. Right. So that's why it was so scary. But we got through it. And, and I, I mean, it's not as if you aren't in the limelight constantly, but the difference being when you're on court, you're one of oh, yeah. many doing you what you've done your out whole there. life versus... Yeah, you got the other team out there. The tension's not just on you. You know, it's, it's maybe when you shoot like a technical free throw, like most people are looking, but still, it's just like, it's different. You got to talk, you got to do all this stuff. I play basketball my whole life. It doesn't, it's, it's not the same for all me. All right, so I don't know if you'd be willing to do this, but the, on your phone, the, the, the notes field, <laughs> any chance you'd be willing to like, you know, open it up and say something you have in there and like how you've been uh, kind of toying in your head with I don't know how something. many things are, um, I don't know how many things are like PG at this point. These are all thoughts that I haven't fleshed out. Okay, this is like, this is a bad one, but it's like the one, one I can read. I was watching this thing and I was trying to think like what like vibe this lady gives off. I was like, oh, she gives off the vibe that she leaves way too detailed Yelp reviews. And sorry if anybody, here leaves Yelp reviews, but I kind of, like I read them and then I'm like, why did I read that and give it any validity? What's the process in like taking that to making it on stage ready? Should you determine that you eventually want to use it? It would be just that. Set a joke up where you say you don't have any friends that leave Yelp reviews and then hopefully somewhere you can bring it back to the, to the beginning. Um, you could bring it back to somebody leaving a Yelp review about my comedy set or something like that. I don't, this is just, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> again, this is all, this is the first thought I've had about this, but um, sometimes it goes nowhere. Sometimes after five minutes, I'm like, that was so stupid. Like, I'm never gonna, I'm, I'll never use that, but I leave it in there. And you have buddies that you'll bounce ideas yeah, off of too, right? Yeah, and uh, like my, a good friend of mine, Neil Brennan, who's actually doing a show in New York right now that's incredible. And he sends um, you stuff to punch up sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's given me a lot, of, a lot of advice, but he's like one of those guys that I, I have always been able to like send stuff to, and he's sort of taught me how to like get to that point. I'll send him something, and like instead of just sending his like change back, he'll tell me why. And I learned early on was like making it concise, take out all the fluff, like get right to the point, set up, set up, set up, punchline. What was involved with prepping for Alec Baldwin's roast? Jeff Ross has a uh, roast show in Montreal, a live roast show, and he asked me if he'd come up, if I'd come up and, and, and do one, and then he just came up to me after the show and he was like, yo, we're doing Alec Baldwin on Comedy Central in like th two months, would you do it? And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. But I started writing like literally right away. It's like I have to have like good jokes. And the this. pressure's on for that one. I mean, they're yeah, big absolutely. time folks. Absolutely. Are, yeah. So I started writing, um, started sending stuff off to friends, um, and then finally got to a place where I had, I would say five jokes for everybody. And then I would go up in LA, comedy store, uh, laugh factory, improv, and I would just be like, hey, like, can I get some time? Like, don't, 
don't take anybody off. Don't put me in front of anybody. Like, I'll go last at the end of a show, whatever you, whatever you have. That's kind of my thing when I do comedies. I never want to, like, take a real comedian's time, somebody that's, like, really putting time in. So I would just go up, and I'd be like, hey, guys, I'm working on this, com like, jokes for this Comedy Central roast, and the audiences were great. So I just, like, worked on it. I probably went up 10 times before I went on stage, maybe less. And I just figured out what worked, what didn't, my pauses, my timing, my, my all that and it just made me so much more confident when I was going up. You have a favorite joke? Uh, some of my Caitlyn Jenner jokes were, <laughs> were, were a lot of fun. And on behalf of the entire NBA and half of the rappers on the Billboard charts, <laughs> I want to thank you for giving your daughters their daddy issues. The Robert De Niro one I was really worried about. Caroline, if you're here, that means uh, Salem the Cat must have turned this down, huh? <laughs> Sorry, Mr. De Niro, we know how much you love that black you apologized right after. Yeah, oh yeah, I was, I was like, because we were all in this room, like, waiting, and he comes in super late and just walks in, shakes everybody's hand, doesn't really say anything, just kind of shakes everybody's hand. I was like, whoa, this guy's intimidating. Like, <laughs> really? Like, oh, yeah, big time. Were you going through in your head, like, whether or not to uh, no, say it? No, I was going to say it. No, you... I couldn't. I didn't come all that way not, okay. to, not yeah, to say yeah. it. Tell about uh, Mortal Media. Yeah, so Mortal, I started with uh, my, my business partner, Ryan Khalil. Um, who played in the NFL uh, yeah, for a yeah, long time. Yeah, sorry, played in the NFL. Went to USC, really good at football, played in the NFL for a long time. But his true love was, it was and is film and TV. But we both kind of had these various projects. So we met one day and we were just like, hey, we have all these things. We want to do the, sort of the same things. We really wanted to do it in a way where we sat down and we were like, <clears throat> would meet with people, meet with producers, writers, directors, whoever would sit down and meet with us and sort of prove to them that like, this is something that we really enjoy and we're passionate about. It's not just like a thing where it's like, oh, let's just let's start a production company and slap our names on yeah. it. We wanted it to, to really come about it the right way. Um, and it took, you know, it took time, which we were willing to, to spend. And you know, now we finally have things that are really, you know, really coming down and, and, and being ready to go. And a, a big one here in Brooklyn's getting ready to start shooting for Apple, right? Yeah, coincidentally, um, we have a show, our first show really that we've, yeah, that we've done, Hello Tomorrow, about to shoot here in Brooklyn. That's one I'm, I'm very, very excited for people to see, sort of like a sci-fi dramedy show um, that started from an idea that my business partner had, that Ryan had, and we've had some success and been, and been fortunate, and we're just trying to keep that ball rolling. And White Man Can't Jump might be an example of this, but just the amount of time it takes yeah. to bring ideas into reality. Absolutely, uh, especially, obviously with COVID, it slowed everything down. We had a good momentum right before that. Um, but then sort of kept the ball rolling a little bit through COVID, but we've been talking about this for, I think, maybe over four years. Um, so it's, it was a good lesson for me early on because I didn't know much about the business side of, of things. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad we started a long time ago because, you know, now it's starting to happen. We had somebody uh, tape a question for you, actually. Oh, boy. <laughs> Hi, Blake. It's Nikki Glazer. Uh, good to see you. I'm not seeing you, but you're seeing me. It's good to be seen by you. Okay, my question for you is why are you funny? Because you are really funny and it's infuriating because generally a sense of humor developing that comes from the fact that you have nothing else going for you. You're not tall and handsome and good at sports. And I'm just, I'm just wondering what made you develop a sense of humor, you think? Um, 
yeah, I'll see you in my DMs. I just grew up loving comedy. Um, I think being the young, younger sibling, the youngest in the family, just like, that was kind of like how I like got attention, was like trying to do funny things. Probably my friends growing up had something to do with it for sure. We would all just try to make each other laugh all the time. Even my friends today, like that's, we just like kind of like run bits all the time. And it probably is so annoying for other people that are around us, but it makes us laugh and, and we have fun with it. Your parents, um, first um, explain the state tattoo. That's sort of just like an ode to my parents. Like I think my parents like instilled in, in my brother and I both like the right values, the right morals. They're like the people that, that um, you know, like I think I aspire to be like. Um, so that stay tattoo is sort of just like a reminder to like just stay in that lane. I watched my parents sacrifice for so long, whether it was like working crazy hours, having two jobs each, um, just to give us everything you know that we needed. Even since I was a kid, like my biggest like thing was always like trying to pay them back, and you know being able to do that from like a, a like a financial standpoint is different than like you know. Um, making them proud or, or showing them that they're, you know, you're grateful for what they did. And it's almost not till later in life and maybe when you're a, a parent of your own that probably you oh, truly sure. uh, appreciate their sacrifice. For sure. There's times where I'm like with my kids and, and I'm like, man, I need to call my parents and tell them like what a great job they did. Like as a parent, you sort of realize that like you're just like trying to make decisions in real time, like the best decision possible in real time. And as a kid, you think, oh, my parents know everything. Like they have this all planned out, or at least I did. They were both educators. Mm -hmm. um, why decide to homeschool you then? I think because they 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 saw how the the what's the term like they saw how the sausage was made. You know, they they saw the inside of the Oklahoma public and not just Oklahoma, um, but they saw the inside of the public school system. And there's great teachers in public school systems that are just set up to fail. Right. Not fail, but they're just set up to, to not be able to utilize the, the, the abilities or the talents or the skills that they have. The public school system sometimes in certain areas, uh, it does the kids and the teachers a disservice. And you know, I've seen that, I've seen that so much. Um, you know, obviously because my parents are, are, are in that category that, um, I think they were just like, you know what, we're not putting our kids in public school because we couldn't afford private school um, at the time. And, and I think they were like, you know, we're, we're not doing this. We're, my mom, you know, took the reins and was like, I'm going to teach them, you know, how I think they should be taught. And your parents choose to give up that salary to homeschool right. you and your brother Taylor. I believe they start a side hustle trophy business yeah. uh, out of the house. Uh, you and your brother really weren't feeling that, were you? <laughs> Uh, no, there were certain aspects of it that was that were okay or a little bit more fun, I guess. And what uh, were those? I didn't mind building the trophies. There's like columns in the trophies, or it's just a single column. My dad would cut the columns, and it was like an assembly line. My mom would take it out of the box, hand him the thing. He would cut it. He would pass it to Taylor. Taylor would dust it off. I would take it, put it in the box, and it was just like over the same thing over and over and over for it literally felt like seven hours. How about the hardest part of being coached by your dad? He knew how to like push the right buttons and I felt like he was just always on me. As soon as I left college, I mean high school, I was just like, man, like I'm so thankful for that because I'm now here and nobody else has been able to get those things out of me.
you know, the way he did. But he was so good at it because as soon as we left, like the gym or left practice or whatever it was, he was just like, he was dad, you know? So he did a, a great job of like balancing those two. To what extent was there ever a conversation you had with him where, you know, since those days where you like truly kind of conveyed the appreciation for uh, that? Definitely, I've definitely conveyed that several times. You know, just like sometimes I'll just text him randomly and just tell him like how thankful I am. Um, but definitely like, you know, around, around when I got drafted, I think maybe that Father's Day, um, I've had those conversations with him. So I think, I hope he knows. Uh, your dad's black, mm -hmm. mom's white. Mm -hmm. What do you think you learned because of that growing up? A lot. I learned from them to just kind of like rise above things. Like you don't always have to give people the reaction they want. A lot of times people are, are, are saying, sometimes saying things just to get a reaction. You know, obviously there's hate in, in a lot of people's hearts and, and um, people that choose to, to say or, or, or um, write or whatever, you know, some of these, these uh, racial things. I think that they're, they're looking to get a rise out of somebody. And my parents were so good at just, they were fine, they were good. Nobody was, nobody was like rattling their, their, like, uh, their love or, or, or what they had. Was there ever an instance that you recall where they conveyed that? I had a conversation with my mom about it and my brother where she, would, she was telling us things that like, people would say to her. And like, we both sort of remember these things. But at the time when you're, when you're like six years old and like nine years old, like, you're not really thinking like, oh, this person, like, this had sort of like, a, like a, either a racial undertone or it was sort of blatantly racist. There was just times where my mom would, or people would say things to my mom, not knowing that she was married to a black man and, and her kids were, were mixed. Um, and she would just kind of like, just dead it. You know what I mean? In, yeah. in like a, in a, in a, in a way where she wasn't condoning, she wasn't, you know, all up in arms, like yelling at people. You do remember noticing that she was treated better by police than your dad was. Not even just police. I remember one time like, uh, a gas station clerk was like kind of like questioning me and my brother like are you guys good and we were like yeah and then they was like where's your where's your dad and we were like right there and he was like kind of like looking at us and like I didn't really think that much of it I thought it was a weird interaction you know yeah. as a kid you can kind of sense that right but you don't realize why until um, you think about it when you're older and you're like oh he thought we he my dad kidnapped us, you know what I mean? There's like things like that, where it's just not just like such like outwardly blatant racism, but it's just like things where you, you realize later on that um, people don't know how to handle certain situations. And how true is it that a girl you were once interested in dating in high school told you she wasn't allowed to date you? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, that, that's really the only time I ever heard that. Did, did she say why? She basically said her dad wouldn't let her date somebody that was black. Pretty straight up, and when I think about it, it was pretty bold of her. For some reason, growing up, I just kind of thought that's how it was. Like, now I think we, we all are so used to having this conversation, and it's been at the forefront of, right. of, of so many things, especially recently. Um, and with social media and, and all this stuff, things you hear the stories and, and things move around and people get sort of condemned. 
but unfortunately, a lot of times when I was growing up, I just was like, that's just, just how it is. Yeah, I was talking to your brother um, yesterday, and he, he was telling me, uh, you geek out on like anything nutrition related. Mm -hmm. You obviously have this podcast, The Pursuit of Healthiness. Um, on the health and wellness front, outside of the obvious, what really interests you? I sort of recently have been super into biohacking aspect of health and wellness. Um, just because I think there's so much potential there for like people to literally change the course of their lives like dramatically. You know, people are going to start living longer. I think when you say reverse aging, people kind of like go nuts because it sounds so insane, but you'll be able to slow down aging. I think that's so interesting, like the biomechanics of things and, and cell and DNA breakdown and, and just how, how, th how modern medicine hopefully can move forward. In what ways are you starting to get into that? Honestly, just research, okay. not, not necessarily doing it myself. Yeah. I kind of have to be pretty careful with like, you know, what I put in my body. Like, yeah. I never want to take something that I haven't fully researched and, and known, will know like what's gonna, you know, right. be on a drug test or not. So I stay pretty safe in terms of like things that I, I take, but I, I have started to listen to a lot of different podcasts or, or read books or articles or, or studies on, on um, all that stuff. But, but on that front and what you put into your body, tell about these food sensitivity tests you'll take mm -hmm. and how that was also partly responsible for reducing the amount of eggs you eat. Early on, I would take these food sensitivity tests and one year it was like eggs was in the red. And so anything that's in the red, like you have to sort of like really cut out of your diet or re really reduce. And, and I eat eggs every morning. And so it kind of changed my thought process. And what I learned over time wasn't necessarily that like, oh, you're just born with the sensitivity. It's that your stomach produces acid to break down these foods. And when you eat something a lot, it's trying to produce enough acid to break down this certain type of food. And when it can't break it all down, some of that seeps through your gut. That is what makes you sort of sensitive in like a very dumbed down way of like explaining yeah. that, I guess. I really learned that most of this stuff is about variety, making sure you, you, you don't just eat the same thing over and over. If you eat grilled chicken, broccoli, and brown rice every single meal, you will be sensitive to those things after a while and your body won't be running as efficiently as possible. The deal with you and microwaves is what? It's terrible for your food. Not only are you taking a good amount of the nutrition out of food, but you're also putting things in that I don't think were necessarily meant to, um, or doing things to the food that I don't think were necessarily meant to be um, digesting or, or putting into our bodies. If I had my way, I wouldn't even use them. I wouldn't even have a microwave in my house, but I, I have one. So you grew up in Oklahoma in the 90s, and yet your mom was having you drink like green barley yeah, yeah. Even, even back then. So she was well ahead of her, her, her oh, time yeah. on uh, all fronts. I always describe my mom as like, as being close to a nutritionist as without having the certification. Like she was always reading like a nutrition book, always, you know, trying new things. We would go to the health food store growing up. We had like the healthy cereals. Like we, uh, our house was the house that friends didn't want to spend the night at because of the meals the next morning. But like explain uh, just how strict you are with your diet in season and then how over time you've learned the need to balance it and give yourself flexibility in the off season. Early on, like uh, during the season I was so strict and then I realized that I had to like sort of pick and choose my spots. Like if I come home after a game and I'm just like, 
tired and I want to eat pizza, like I'll eat pizza. I never say like, oh, I don't eat any dairy. Or I don't eat any gluten. Or I try not. I try to limit some of those things sometimes. Every now and then, I have to just like do what you want to do um, with your diet. Um, just to sort of keep myself sane. Name all the injuries that you can remember <laughs> getting oh, over the man. years. Uh, like in college, I dislocated my kneecap. Um, then I tore my meniscus in the same year. Um, my rookie year, I had like a crack in the bottom of my patella. I had to go in and take that out. That was like the first big surgery I had. Tore my meniscus playing for USA Basketball. My elbow got infected because they had to drain it because like, I had bursitis which I would always like play through. It wasn't really an injury. Got infected, so I had to have surgery, so I missed time for that. Broke my hand, two more meniscus, um, and I think that's it so far. What was the toughest period for you amid all the injuries? I think it was like around the time when I tore the ligament in the bottom of my toe because I was so regimented and so strict and I still am but like there was a period of like two two and a half years three years where I had my elbow my knee and my foot in like back to back to back seasons I would take pregame naps in the hyperbaric chamber I would ice bath you know I, I, would, I would diet everything I could possibly do your supplements whatever it was and I would I was still getting injured you and couldn't get your break yeah, and this was the third year in a row. And, and I remember in the playoffs, I, I had to go get an MRI like during the end of the game. And the doctor came in and told me what happened. And I just broke down. And I just like was like, why? why? I'm doing everything I possibly can. Yeah. I've, I've spent so much money. But I was doing so much to prevent that. And it just kept happening that it, it like, why am I doing all this? And this is still happening. Like, should I just like cut out should I just stop should I stop caring as much and like and not spend time sleeping in this hyperbaric chamber when I could be out like playing with my kids you know what I mean like should I should I stop sacrificing so much just to like try to like prolong or be healthier do all this stuff um, and that was just like a low point of thinking and how do you go about reorienting the thought process because you said you started to realize if I wasn't making all these sacrifices and doing all this stuff. Probably wouldn't be playing today. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, you sort of, like, I remember a certain point, I think it was maybe that night when I woke up after that injury that I was like, all right, that, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Like, you still get to, you know, play this game. You still get to do the things you love. I'm gonna figure out when I'm gonna have surgery. I'm gonna start rehab. I'm gonna stay on my diet. I'm gonna do all this stuff and I'm gonna get back. You know, like I said, it was just a, a momentary low point of thinking. Fortunately, it's always been somewhat easy to sort of bounce back into that mindset. You have said before you've gone to see a, a, a therapist. Like, oh, what, yeah, yeah, what sure. caused you to make the decision to do that? When I first got into the league, maybe my second year, like, teams started to, like, have the idea to have sports. It's more like performance therapists, okay. you know what I mean? People to help you with, like, your mindset or, like, visualization and all that. But then I sort of realized the importance of just, like, talking to somebody, especially growing up, like, mental health was such a taboo subject right. you kind of like when you don't know s too much about a subject you kind of think it's not for you it's for people with a certain thing but then after you go you realize like everybody would benefit from yeah. having somebody oh, sure. completely sure. objective just somebody you could just tell things that you don't really tell anybody else right when i decided to do that i just i had just talked to my friend who who was like oh, i was talking about this in therapy and i was like 
maybe I should like just give this a try. Like talk to this, talk to somebody who like can literally just like hear your thoughts. And a different friend also told me that going to therapy isn't about going and telling somebody your problems and then giving you the answers. It's about going and telling them your problems and then them helping you arrive at the answers. In what ways have you found it helpful to you? It's honestly just like a stress reliever. Like you just get to talk about some things that um, you sometimes don't want to burden other people with, you know? and. It's just like a sounding board. It, 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 it was exactly what I thought it was going to be going into it, which was, which was very reassuring. It was just like me saying like, man, this is like how I'm feeling about this. And him sort of just like not being like, yeah, here's what you should do. It was just kind of be like, yeah, you know, like you're, 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 it's totally okay. Or you're right to feel like that. Um, but what do, you, what, what do you think is the next step? And it's just sort of like, walking, helping me just like, I'm trying to walk down this road and just kind of keeping me on this road, you know, to like feel, feel better about a decision or feel better about what, whatever's going on or, or just be reassured. I think that's like the best way I can describe just it. Just another tool to have at your disposal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, meditation. Uh, yeah. I, well, I, I understand you started to get a little more open or interested in it once mm -hmm. you realized it doesn't have to be this long time yeah. every time you do it. Yeah, so I, I interviewed Andy Puttycomb on my podcast. He's a co-founder of Headspace. Um, and, and my conversation with him sort of opened my eyes uh, to it. Not that I was closed off to it. I just would like try and I'm like, I can't do this. This is like, I'm supposed to do this for 30 minutes or 20 minutes. And he was like, just start with a minute. You know what I mean? And, and in, my, in your mind before you do that, you're like, okay, I'm not gonna meditate for a minute. That's like a like a, a disgrace to meditation <laughs> everywhere. So that just sort of made me feel like whatever I could do was like enough. You know what I mean? When it, when it came to meditation, I sort of started there and then I sort of switched to like trying to just practice like more mindfulness um, and just making sure that I'm like, you know, acknowledging things in my life, like thankful for things in my life. Um, you know, every, every morning, like before I go about my day. Um, switching gears here, uh, I want to take you back to before you were drafted. It becomes clear you're likely going to be going to the Clippers. You go to Google to start yeah. searching, and what do you find out? Most of the things that, I, that came up on Google when the Clippers said they were going to draft me, I searched the whole franchise, really, and then, you know, you go down a rabbit hole on, on Wikipedia. And right. You're on Donald Sterling's page and you get to like the uh, section where it talks about lawsuits and you're like, whoa, whoa. like this is a, it's a long list of lawsuits of, and, and things that have been brought against him. And at like 19 years old, you're kind of just like, all right, well, that, that sucks. But well, because it wasn't one of the first things that came up was Donald Sterling is racist. racist. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it was like an article or, or, or something. But at like 19, when your whole dream is to play in the NBA and like you're like, oh, this team is going to give me a chance to do that, you're just kind of like, all right, whether I should have, you know, stood up and said something or, or made a big deal about it. It's just like I, that I wasn't mentally or, or emotionally mature enough to, to uh, do that at the time. Tell about the white party. <laughs> yeah, it's I've told pretty, this story sometimes. A, I know, it's a pretty remarkable story. Um, yeah, so like when I, I first got drafted, and this I had to be on 4th of July. And almost 
comical now. Oh yeah, for sure. Probably comical not now. that yeah. miserable at the time. Yeah. Uh, they're like, hey, Donald Sterling wants you to come to his white party. And I was like, that makes sense. So they're like, you have to wear all white. So I remember I had to like go find some sh like white shorts that you could wear to a party. White t-shirt, I show up and, and I'm by myself in this car, like pulling up to this house in Malibu. And then somebody from the team meets me there. And then like, okay, Donald wants to come out. And he comes out with like, I don't know, like a group of six people. And they're all in white. Donald Sterling's in all black. And I was like, that's okay. All right. Um, so then he like comes up, introduces himself, and then literally walks me around the party for what felt like an hour and a half, like by the hand. He would walk me around, he would like introduce me to, to the people at his party, and he'd be like, this is Blake, our fabulous new draft pick. I would just kind of like shake everybody's hands and talk and do that thing, and then he would grab my hand and he'd lead me to the next person. And again, I'm 19 or 20, and I was just kind of like, all right, like, here we go. Right. I didn't know what to do. Like, this right. guy owns a team. Every conversation was pretty much the same thing. I remember one guy looked at me as I was walking off, and he just goes, just keep smiling, man. It'll be over soon. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Tell about the Baron Davis incident when, like, Sterling was sitting on the sidelines and... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Baron maybe at the free throw line or something. Sterling was, like, just going nuts on him during a game about playing bad or something like that. I wasn't even playing it. This was when I was sitting out. Um, and at the time, the arenas were, like, the, for Clippers games, it was, like, half empty or half full, however mm -hmm. you want to look at it. So it was, like, very quiet in there. And I couldn't really hear exactly what he was saying, but it was just kind of, like, obvious that this was weird. Did you talk to Barron after that? Oh, I think Barron, like, spoke about it. But honestly, man, the, pro the, the sad thing is it was just kind of like, yeah. Like, that was, you know, that was crazy, but that's like, you know, that's Donald Sterling. Explain how everything changed once Balmer became owner. Donald Sterling just like, I think he liked owning the team, but he didn't care whether we were, you know, whether it was good or not. I think he was just kind of like, you know, it's, I own this team, I get to go to these games sometimes, and it's a, it's a thing. Um, Balmer like cares about winning, you know, and, and, and loves basketball, loves sports, and, you know, when in any organization at the top, like if things are the right way at the top, then that'll like seep down and, and, and that gives you a chance to, to be a good organization or a good company, whatever it is. And one owner went out, one owner came in, you could just tell the difference, you know, right away. It, didn't, it wasn't just like overnight, but things like slowly changed, you know, over the course of the next like four, five years, whatever it was. A lot of the staff um, was no longer on temp contracts. Right. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. When people feel secure and people feel uh, wanted and, and feel like they're being appreciated, like, you know, it makes people work hard. It makes people enjoy coming to work, and, and that's what changed. The trade. Um, take me through everything you remember from the lengths to which the Clippers went about convincing you to re-sign, including the, the Staples Center where there was the visual depiction of your story. It was crazy. We walked in. A lot of my teammates were there. Obviously, good to see them, but I also felt bad. I was like, sorry, guys, you didn't have to come <laughs> to this. They had, like, different phases of my life, like my childhood, like big, giant, blown-up pictures of, like, my childhood, like certain things from my childhood. I had this, like, green Huffy bike there and, like, basketball, a little tight goal, like, 
you turn the corner and it's like high school and like my high school like state championship trophies and medals and and uh, pictures again and then at University of Oklahoma and then early on in the league you kind of like walk through like memory lane I guess um, and then you came out to the court and there was like a big couch like set up and I sat there with my kids and my family and it was a Jersey retirement ceremony. Um, and then Sandra Day sang Rise Up uh, with like a, a, a choir. A Jersey retirement ceremony as a, a, you were retiring a, as a lifelong yeah, Clipper. Yeah, as a lifelong yeah. Clipper, yeah, a fake Jersey retirement. Um, she sang that song and I was like, wow, that was nuts. And then we went in and like talked about, you know, we got down to like the actual business of it. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was nuts. It was like one of the craziest things I've <laughs> I've seen. For it, sure. At what point in that were you, like, pretty much sold? Honestly, man, like, like that stuff. I, I'm appreciative of like how much thought went into it and and, and how um, detailed they got and and all that. But the, for me, it was about talking about like what's the future, what's what's going to happen, what are we going to do to like you know try to win and and. Um, so that that's when that happened, like when I when we sat down and had like a real like business talk. Probably had to make it hurt all the more when six months later you find out you're you're traded. How did it make you feel, kind of given that context? Um, I mean, I understand for sure through a business point of view. I, I, I completely understand. You know, a team wants to go a certain way. They had a plan. Um, they wanted to. to win a championship, you know, very quickly. And, and um, they didn't think that that was going to happen, you know, with me there. And I, I, I totally get that. I just, you know, the only thing is, you know, we kind of wish it had gone about, uh, they'd gone about it a different way. Um, How so? Just like, you know, the, like sort of like, I guess the respect of having, you know, letting, letting an agent know, letting your agent know so that like, hopefully both parties can work out a deal that they both want, it both works for them. Because you found out from just kind of a, a friend. Yeah, a friend, had told me, a friend had told me, and I called my agent to kind of tell, tell him, hey, this is what I heard. He's like, oh, let me call. No, nobody picked up. He called me back. He's like, that was weird. Normally, he answers my call every time. And I was like, all right, that's weird. So I had to go in the facility that morning to like do a lift. Um, and I had called the GM as well, or whatever his title is, and no, no response, no, nothing in return like an hour and a half later. And I was like, yeah, I'll go up there and just, like, just check. And, um, never forget that conversation. I went up there and I was like, hey, to his assistant, it's a good, good dude. I, I uh, was like, hey, see in there? And he's like, uh, I think he's in a meeting. And he, he looked a little shook when I walked up there. And I'm like, tell him I want to talk to him. And so he goes in there and he, uh, he comes out like a little bit later and he's like, hey, uh, yeah, let's, go in, uh, let's go in here. Uh, to this other office, and uh, he goes to open the door, and it's locked. So it's just me and him. He turns to his assistant. He's like, uh, "Can you get the keys for this?" And uh, he's like, "Yeah." The assistant like scurries off. So it's just me and him. And uh, he's like, "How's it going?" I was, I was like, "I was like, I was like, you tell me." And he's like. We're standing there, just an awkward, uh, just just a moment of awkwardness for for uh, I don't know a good 20 seconds. He's like, all right, let's just go in my office, and I was like, you know, I just want to know like what's going on, and he's you know he starts with like the, you know, a player of your caliber, and I was like, well, like don't come on, I got just I don't need all that, I just want to know, you know, and he's like, you'll be the first call, and I was like, I right, appreciate it, and. Um, 
I was driving home, went to pick up my kids. I saw Woj's tweet that says the Clippers and Pistons are uh, finalizing, whatever, finalizing a deal. But also, my friend was giving me updates the whole time. He's yeah. like, hey, it's at the one-yard line. And that was it. So that's what I mean. Like, I totally get it from their, like, standpoint and a business standpoint. Like, when I move on from a guy, it's completely normal. It was just, like, everything, everything about it that, you know, it's tough, but... Steve Ballmer and Doc Rivers both called you afterwards. You didn't answer. What's the likelihood that relationship can be repaired? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, probably can. I, the reason, the, mostly the reason I didn't answer is, like, I, you know... The way, again, just how it happened, and then I was, I was with my kids. My phone was just blowing up. We were like on the trampoline, we were playing this game, and I just like, I wasn't, I wasn't picking up. And then after that, I was just kind of like, what, what am I gonna call him back? And, you know, talk about it. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I don't, it's not like this thing where I'm just like, no, I'll never speak to, <laughs> speak to these people again. Right. It's just like, at the time, I, I don't think I was ready to do that. Whether that was right or wrong, I'm not saying I was right th in thinking that, but that's just how I felt at the time. And, and again, it was with my kids, and that's a, that's a special time for me. Kevin Durant, um, explain his involvement in recruiting you to the Nets. I don't really want to say it was like recruiting. It really wasn't. You know, once I was like, I was, you know, figuring out a, a deal with Detroit, it was just, I was kind of weighing my options. I've, I've known Kevin and James and Kyrie for a long time, and. Um, We've like worked out together before, and we just we we spoke on text. That was that was really it. As a player, isn't that everything you want? If the one of the team's star players like to know they want you to be there, and like isn't that? Positive? I don't mean to sound like not appreciative yeah, of yeah. it, but uh, yeah, I I somebody asked me that, and I was, they were like, "Who recruited you the hardest?" And I was like, "Oh, I, I was just like, I guess Kevin." Yeah. You know, like it wasn't like he was like. <laughs> it was like flying to my house. Right. Like come. It wasn't like that type of recruitment. It was just like, hey, like, you know, come bring your ass to Brooklyn. Let's, you know, let's let's try to make a run at this thing. You know, that that again, yeah. When a, when a player of his caliber like says something like that, like, yeah, it means it means something for sure. How well do you remember playing him in high school? I look back at that game and I'm like, man, this is awful basketball. Just like we're no one's playing defense. Like everybody's just kind of like running around. But that was like AU basketball at the time. Like we play like ten games uh, in two days. So. Um, you knew he was going to be this good. Did you? I mean, well, I mean, maybe not this good. I mean, he's. But you, you knew, knew he was going to be a superstar. Yeah. He's one of the, you know, best players to ever play. I think it's like his God-given talent, along with just his true, just absolute love for basketball. Anything and everything basketball. He just loves it. Loves to play basketball, and, and that's always refreshing from like one of the biggest superstars you know, of all time. It's just like, he's all about basketball. And how is that different from well, maybe I mean, the other? You know, I haven't truly been around like LeBron in the same way or, or um, some of these other guys, but like. It's not every day though that somebody like that's all basketball 24-7. I love basketball. Yeah. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin just like, his favorite thing to do, and so is mine, but he just like, he will play all day if you let him. He'll play all day and he'll, he watches basketball, he loves to talk basketball, he like, he watch like high school kids play, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? He's just like, he, and he, you know, he gives back to the game and, and I think we all do, but like, you can tell he's at his pure like happiness um, when, when it's about hoops and uh, it's just refreshing because it's, it's like, it's just that. There's no like fluff, there's no like PR gimmicks, there's no anything else with him, it's just, he, that, that's who he is. Your brother Taylor, um, 
Tell about uh, when you guys, as kids, were on the bleachers and he <laughs> convinced you to jump off like 10 feet. For some reason, like the big like pole vaulting mats that you like fall onto were in the gym that yeah. day. So we like pushed him down, we pushed him by the bleachers and we would climb up to the top of the bleachers and jump down. And one of us was like, hey, let's have a race, see who can get up and down three times the fastest. So I like climb up to the top and kind of like jump to the top and go to push off and sock just psh, and I just completely missed the mat. And I like get up and I'm like checking my legs and they're fine and I like move my wrist and it hurts so bad. I didn't tell anybody for like a day and a half. And then finally like my mom I think noticed that like I couldn't do anything with my right hand and or my left hand and um, she was like, all right, we got to go to the hospital. Um, but I was just terrified to tell my parents and that didn't, that's how you I, broke your arm, Yeah, right? I broke my wrist, yeah. Your wrist. I broke my wrist. Having an older brother at some point made you want to do everything better than him, right? You know, you talk about that person to chase. Like, he was, like, my person to chase always, just always. And that just sort of, like, fueled my competitiveness for years and years and years. And he's now your manager. I never, I don't say manager. I, he's, like, a business partner with me because we run so much stuff together. He helps me manage, you know, things, but he's not my manager. He's a business partner. And, you know, it's important for us to, like, get our family foundation going, get the AAU program that we played for, um, you know, get that up and running. We, you know, it's Team Griffin. In Oklahoma. Um, yeah, yeah, in Oklahoma. And, you know, he's got that to a, an unbelievable place and, and been able to help a lot of kids and, and give back like somebody gave to us. He's, yeah heading our family ventures, um, all of our investment stuff, and just absolutely killing it. Um, so I just wanted to be cognizant of, like, you know, I, I understand, you know, what he is capable of, and, and but I would be, you know, greatly appreciative if he, like, would join me in, in, in trying to tackle all these things. And what's it like working together? It's amazing because he just, like, can make decisions that he knows that he's, like, very confident that I feel the same way. All these decisions he makes are, are for us, you know, for us as a family. And, and again, that's why I say he's, he's a business partner. How do you go about sourcing investment opportunities? We look at the obvious, like, do you believe in, like, the product? And two, do you believe in the people that are behind the product, like the, the management team, the, the executive team that's behind this product? And this could be on a big scale or a very small scale. Will this change people's lives? Will this change, like, the world in a way? There's a lot to it, but I also have really come to enjoy it because it, it's, you just like learn about what, what else is happening. Like what, who's pushing the envelope? Who's has this idea? Like what could possibly be next? How did SpaceX come about? That came through um, Patrickoff Company, who we, we've worked closely with and my brother now. It was just one of those things where like, obviously like SpaceX, something like that, like that could change the world, you know, and, and Elon Musk, it's a, person who you just believe in is somebody who's creating and, and, and moving the envelope forward in, in so many different spaces. It was sort of just like a, for me and my brother, it was kind of a no-brainer as to like, this is something that's very, very cool and like we, we, we can't miss this opportunity. Hyperice, uh, what you bought in at and what it's valued at now. I just did a sweat equity deal with Hyperice. I was always icing my knees, always, I, you know, ice was, was huge, or is huge, especially when we first came into the league. and. and I was like looking for a better way to like do that on my own or more efficiently. I thought it was a really cool idea. Uh, Anthony Katz, the, the, the founder, was just a really interesting guy who's, who's just kind of forward thinking. And I remember we were sitting, after a couple of years, we were sitting in Vegas uh, at USA Basketball and we went to dinner and 
I was like, I use this machine before every game. It'd be cool if you could do like a, you know, a better version of that. And then four years later, five years later, the, he came out with one and they've just gotten better and better and better and better. Um, and hopefully it makes people healthier, hopefully it helps people exercise longer or feel better or whatever it is. I mean, you're being humble in the, the great thing. I mean, it's $10 million valuation and now it could be pushing a billion? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully pushing a billion, hopefully over, but um, you know, we'll see. I remember hearing stories about players taking equity in companies instead of doing endorsement deals. And at the time I was just like, I don't really you know, want another endorsement deal. I'd love to have equity in this thing that I think is cool and never imagined in a million years that like it would get to this point. But, yeah. you know, it was obviously you're always hopeful when you when you take equity in something that it would. But it's been uh, it's been cool. And it's kind of opened my eyes to, to the, the investment world. And what about real estate? Uh, we've we've done a decent amount of real estate, um, both actually commercial and residential. What do you enjoy more? I think, like, I love how, like, I, I watch, like, HGTV sometimes. So, me personally, I, I find residential real estate really interesting. Um, I think Taylor would probably tell you commercial, which makes more sense. The more logical thinker is sort of me just being like, oh, I like houses. Yeah. But we've, we've done a good, a decent amount in both, and um, they're both very interesting to me and been fortunate to come across, like, some really cool opportunities. Before you found success, how did you find smart ways to save money? I was always like, just like naturally good at saving money. I never spent money. I would like save up all my money and like buy one thing. Like my brother would always like save money and like buy clothes, he'd buy shoes, he'd buy, you know, just like things that he wanted. And I would just like sit on my money, like right. working in the, the trophy shop, like we would get paid a little bit. And I would just like save it for nothing, you know? And then I would probably buy something stupid. When I was really young, I, was, I bought like a ch children's compound bow. Because Wait, it's like a compound bow, you know, like okay. a bow and arrow. Yeah. It was like a compound bow because I just like thought it was like really cool. And I mean, I used it for a while. Um, but like that's something that was just like probably didn't need to spend your money on that, you know. And your mom, though, um, both when you were a kid, oh, I understand, yeah, yeah. taught you about budgeting. And oh, then yeah. once you got into your career, was still involved too, right? Yeah, so when we were kids, we would have these these envelopes, yeah, it was checking, savings, entertainment, like food or something like that. So if we, we wanted to go out to eat with friends, like we'd take this like food part or we'd, if I wanted to go to a movie, I'd do this or like buy something with this. And then I, so I would always have to put like, if I made $8 working in the trophy company for a couple hours or whatever it was, then I would just have to like divvy it up, you know, and, and, and put it in the, in the right envelope. And that budgeting like sort of just like taught me from an early age, like this is how it works. Like you don't just like get money and spend it. You, you put some aside, you have some for like a rainy day, you have some for what you want to do. Um, and then, you know, when I first got into the league, my mom would be on calls with my financial manager every Wednesday for like two and a half years. Really? Three years, yeah. Why? She just wanted to make sure that nobody was taking advantage of us. Um, and, and again, another reason I'm very appreciative of, of what my parents do. Best advice you could ever give on the financial front would be what? I always say to guys, like young guys, especially in the league, besides like the obvious of like, hey, let's like, don't go spend all your money. Like, you know, just save and like, wait till that second contract before you buy something. I always say to guys like, have a checks and balances with, within your 
within your worlds. Like, make sure that like, you know what your financial advisor is doing. I have friends who, you know, teammates, friends who just have gotten so much money taken from them, um, whether it's by a, a relative or by a money manager or whoever it was, just because, um, you know, sometimes things like slip through the cracks. And not just because they, were, they weren't paying attention at all, but like, you know, if somebody's gonna steal from you, they're gonna try to hide it. So you gotta be like, gotta be on it. Worst financial decision you ever made? Worst financial decision I ever made? Like a certain investment, but like, I don't really look at it that way because it was like an opportunity. There was something at the time that I believed in and it just didn't work out. So And if you put know. the ball in play enough on the investment yeah, front exactly. like some making you know, smart decisions, something yeah. will hit. The ones that hit, like, take care of the ones that don't. What's fatherhood taught you? Fatherhood's a really crazy thing because it, it not only increases, like, the love in your life, but it also, like, increases your capacity to love, which is, like, kind of a crazy idea. Because you think, you know, you, you, you love your parents, you love your friends, you love your significant other, whatever it is, but, like, uh, the love you have for your child, like, is just so all-encompassing. It also just, like, keeps me like so like I guess grounded in a way just like seeing what my kids truly care about they never care if you like play bad or like the world cares about they're just like play with me they both have like very different qualities and very different personalities are very different and you learn different things from both of them it's like always just like so refreshing when you just like have had enough with like the world and you're just with your kids you know they mean everything to me um and like, you know, I know I wouldn't be where I am today without them. How about the most difficult part of fatherhood? For me, especially right now, is like being away. Whether I was in Detroit or, or even like, you know, when I was in LA, you know, you go on like a two week road trip and you come back and like, I remember when my daughter was like just born, like you missed, I missed like her rolling over for the first time or, or um, you know, like her first step or what, you know, whatever it is, like you just miss the, if you're gonna be on the road traveling, you're gonna miss things and, and that's, that's like the toughest part is just being away. What would you like for your kids? Just to be happy. You know, people always ask like if I'm gonna, if I like, if I'm gonna make my son play basketball or like make him play sports and like, I'm not going to, I think sports is great for kids. You know, it teaches teamwork, it teaches working with other people and, and you know, being around different personalities and, and you know, sometimes how to lead, but I just want them to be happy, like do whatever they want. What about for yourself on the kind of personal front? Honestly, the same thing, to be honest. Once I'm done playing basketball, I, I, you know, I hope to have like so, you know, a lot of different things set up to where I can just step into those and, and you know, enjoy what I'm doing. But like, you know, to me, like, you can't really put a price tag on, on, you know, happiness and truly doing what you want in life. You see, yeah, uh, getting married at some point. I don't know, man. I like kind of go back and forth, think about it sometimes, and uh, there's times when I'm just like, you know what, I'm good. Like, got my two kids and I'll just like kind of they'll, they'll be my thing and then sometimes I'm like, nah, like you, you know it'll happen like just like I'm just not in a rush you know I'm not like forcing it right now um, I, I, I enjoy where I'm at in life. How crazy is it to think in your early 30s now in any other career you would just be kind of entering the the prime of your career and this is the time where folks start to talk about retirement. Isn't that, that whole dynamic strange, just considering how yeah. young the guy I mean, is? Yeah, it's something I've thought about for a long, long time. I mean, I remember when we were at this like rookie transition program early on, they were talking about the average career is like three and a half years. And I was like, whoa, 
like I could uh, I could be done like so quickly in the NBA. I think that's the beauty of the modern athlete that the, the athlete today is is much more aware of that and much more forward thinking and has planned and and not everybody but a lot of guys have and like I said I, I, I have certain things set up now to where when I'm retired I'll have things to do I'll have you know other careers and other things to, to put my time towards but, but NBA related is not of, of interest to you from what I understand right yeah I, I don't think I'll seek like a job in the NBA I'll be around basketball like if, if my son wants to play or, or whoever if anybody you know I'm, I'm always willing to like help if I can you know and try to give back to especially kids but I don't know man after after traveling and being in the NBA and just you know having that that life for a certain amount of time I think I'm just ready to be a little bit more more in one place I guess that's it for the sit down portion the interview then continued in our car ride through Brooklyn what do you like about New York it's just like so culturally diverse. There's so much going on. The sports fans here are fantastic. Like they, they like truly know the, the game of basketball and like they're passionate about it. Especially like Brooklyn, man. Like you always kind of notice their crowd had like a little bit more of like a college feel. They do more like chants. They like get stuff going. Like that's, uh, that's like a fun atmosphere. I always enjoyed you know, playing against uh, this crowd just because, like, they were always kind of into the game. No matter how good or bad their team was, they were yep. just always into it, you know? How's the process been going looking for a place to call home here? Uh, I found a place in Tribeca, and I love that area. I mean, I, I love walking around the city. It's, it's like, it's great. Like, I, it's, like, something I didn't really ever do, like, anywhere else. Are people pretty good about letting you be? Uh, yeah, for the most part, people just kind of like say, yo, what up? Or like, hey, yeah. like, you know, something like that. Or like wave or whatever it is. Like, you don't really get like stopped for like a picture as much yeah. here. As I think I think it's like as you do in L.A. People come to L.A. and they're like looking to take a picture with somebody right. or something, you know. And Tell about uh, the burglar when you were living oh, yeah. in your other house. So yeah. like, take me through that story, like masked intruders. We had a game at home. And I had like, I think I like rolled my ankle pretty bad, or, or I can't remember exactly what it was, but I stayed back from the trip, and you know, like put put my son to bed, and I'm dead asleep, and um, my fiance at the time was was like woke up and was like, did you hear that? I just like grabbed my phone, and I look on the um, camera to see to look in his room, I see him in his crib, and I'm like, huh. And then I'm like looking at the other cameras. I see the, the outside like motion light on. So I rewind the cameras and I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm watching. I'm literally about to click my phone off and I see three dudes in masks walk out of my kitchen and like walk towards the back door. And I just like chills literally from the top of my, I will never forget, top of my head to, the, to my feet, just all the way down. And I grabbed like the baseball bat that was by the bed and I told, I told um, her to call the police and they showed up fast like six in the front guns drawn <clears throat> I opened the front door and the guy's like hey uh, we got guys in the backyard right now um, uh, you know, and also a helicopter's on the way and I was like whoa really and he was like yeah we got nothing to do <laughs> I was like all right that's cool um, so we like found out that I had just like stupidly left this sliding door open 
they came in the sliding door. One of them went downstairs. One of them stayed on the main level, and one of them went upstairs and like came up, turned on the light, like looked in, saw me in bed, and then just went back downstairs. So he was like, you know, 15 feet away from me. I was just dead asleep. It was like tough to sleep for a little bit, like definitely that night for sure. But even like the next nights, so you're like still thinking about it. You know? Right. D did they catch him? They eventually caught him. So the same guys had broken into one of my teammates, DeAndre Jordan's house, uh, like two weeks before when we were on the road. Like one of them had the same sweats on. It had like uh -huh. a logo right here. Um, and they were wear like bags on their shoes, gloves, and masks. So it's like the same thing. Uh, and you got a, a dog after yeah, that. Yeah, so I got a home, home protection uh, German Shepherd. He was like a SWAT dog. It obviously beefed up my security in my right. house. You know, put, to put the alarm on every night, made sure every door was locked, but <clears throat> everybody said the best home protection is a dog or a shotgun, and I wasn't getting a shotgun. So I just was like, I want to get a dog. I'd rather have a dog anyway. Right. He just puts the fear <laughs> fear of God in people's eyes. What was the pandemic like for you? I, um, and I, we're still in it, but I'm talking yeah, about yeah, the, the kind of depths beginning. of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was uh, it was interesting. I had just moved into a new house, so it was like in a way it was nice to be home. Obviously, the circumstances were awful, um, and it just kind of like it also put to sort of a, a, a stop on, on like my rehab, you know. And from from a personal perspective, again, I don't mean to sound like disingenuous to what everybody else is going through, but I just mean from my perspective, I should have been working with the trainer every day, like doing, you know, all the. The, the body work that we do. I basically just kind of had to do everything on my own. How much do you think it slowed the progression? Uh, definitely slowed it down, but you know, I was still able to get some, some good work in it. As, as to how much, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I feel much, much better, you know, a, a year removed, obviously. How strange was it to, you know, have gone pretty much your entire life or entire professional life with you know, having such a regimented schedule and mm -hmm. traveling all the time to all of a sudden everything just immediately stops. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was interesting. So my friends and I were just like sitting there and we had like it was the second night in a row we had ordered Italian food and like like had some wine and stuff and, and we kind of looked at each other after the second night and we we're like, this can't continue. Like we can't just do, we can't just order Italian and drink wine every night. We had like this list of like commandments of how we were going to live in quarantine. Are you serious? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, take me through the commandments. Okay, so we started out six days of workouts. Can't drink before 6 p.m. <laughs> on weekdays. Can't drink consecutive days except for on the weekends. Each member gets to pick an album or artist to work for the workout to listen to. Each member gets a mutually upon a mutually a mutually agreed upon veto of somebody's music pick. Can only have a late night on Saturday. Uh, sustainable water bottles only. <laughs> have to eat healthy four of the five days of the week of the of the week, and. Uh, Sundays is like cheat day. No phones during workouts. What else do we got? Yeah, that's pretty much it. It was nuts. It was a nuts time. But we found like some sort of semblance of like structure that like really helped, you know, kind of keep everybody a little bit more sane. Who's your least favorite teammate? My least favorite teammate? Probably uh, this kid Steve in third grade. Yeah? Yeah, he was, he was a real pain in the ass. KD's truly as bad as as bad of a guy as you were telling us about <laughs> off camera. Yeah, 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 man. It's you know, are we we're not rolling here right now, right? The red dot means off, right? <laughs> okay.
Yeah, man. <laughs> I hate, uh, hate him. It's just like, pass me the ball sometimes, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And that's where this podcast ends. YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger to see video clips of our interview. You can watch Griffin absolutely destroy me in a game of arcade basketball. Plus, we surprised some fans at the Brooklyn Bridge Park basketball courts. Make sure to check it all out. As always, leave us a rating and review. Any feedbacks, always appreciated. Thanks again for listening.